Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2? Jesus said in John 13 that the primary evidence that we are his disciples is our love. Peter told us in his first letter to be fervent in love. Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 13, no matter what else I do, if I don't have love, I am nothing. And he said in Colossians chapter 3, above all these things, put on love. And perhaps nowhere else in Scripture do we hear the echo of that truth so clearly as we do here in 1 John. John uses that word love 43 times. We're to love, 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 love. And so it sounds somewhat conspicuous when we come to our passage this morning and find out that we're not to love. Chapter 2 and verse 15. Do not love. This morning, John is going to turn our attention to the love God hates. A group of first graders took a field trip to a local hospital. After the tour was over, the nurse who had directed them asked if there were any questions. One little boy raised his hand. He said, why do the people who work here keep washing their hands? After the giggles were over, the nurse said, they're always washing their hands for two reasons. First, they love health, and second, they hate germs. You see, if you really love health, you can't love germs because they're mutually exclusive. And that same principle that applies in the physical realm applies in the spiritual realm. If you love spiritual health, you have to hate spiritual germs. Psalm 97.10 says, You who love the Lord hate evil. And so this morning, in verses 15 to 17, we're going to focus our attention on spiritual germs. John is going to help us understand the love God hates. And to approach this passage, I just want us to ask two simple questions. What is it that we're not to love? And why? First of all, what is it that we're not to love? Verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. Now John mentions two things. The world and the things in the world. Now what does John mean when he talks here about the world? Well, that word is used three different ways in Scripture. First of all, it's used of the material universe. John chapter 1 and verse 10, speaking of Jesus, says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him. You see, that's talking about the physical universe. That's talking about the land and the water and the sky. The Bible refers to that as the world. Now, is that the way John is using this word in 1 John 2.15? Are we to hate the mountains and the trees and the rivers and the oceans? No. 
You see, since we love God, it only follows that we love his creation. I can kind of tell what stage we're at as parents because it's getting where I can see our refrigerator door. We've gone through three kids bringing artwork home from school and church. And each time we would say, it's beautiful. What is it? When Lindsay was in the three-year-old Sunday school class, she drew a picture, and Ed Smith asked her what it was, and she said, it's driftwood. Now, Ed was pretty impressed that we had a three-year-old who even knew what driftwood was, much less to be able to draw a picture that actually depicted driftwood. So he came to Tempa and me to brag about our daughter, and we had to confess to him that driftwood was the name of our horse. <laughs> See, all of those kinds of pictures spent time on our refrigerator door. And the reason was those pictures were special to us because our child created them. You see, the parent loves the creation because he loves the child. And so if anyone ought to love and appreciate this physical universe, it ought to be the children of God. The unbeliever says, what a beautiful accident. The believer says, what a beautiful masterpiece. He recognizes the hand of God and he glorifies God when he sees it. And that's what Psalm 19.1 says we ought to see. It says the heavens declare the glory of God. And so our response ought to be the words of that familiar hymn, This is my Father's world. The birds their carols raise. The morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. And so this word world is used sometimes of the material universe. But that's not the way John is using it in our passage. There's a second way it's used, and that is it's used of the people of this earth. When Jesus came, John 1.10 says, the world did not know him. See, that's talking about the people on this planet. A few years ago, there was a popular song called we are the world. And in one sense of this word, that's true. Now, is that the way John is using this word in our passage? Is he telling us that we're not to love people? Well, no. You see, that would be totally inconsistent with God's love. John 3, 16 says what? For God so loved the world. And we're to have that same love for people. In fact, Jesus went so far as to say in Matthew 5, 44, that we are to love our enemies. And so this word world is sometimes used of the people on this earth. But that's not the way John is using it in our passage. You see, there's a third way that this word is used, and that is it's used of the system 
that controls and influences this planet. In fact, the word world is the Greek word cosmos. It means an order, an arrangement. It's, it's the word from which we get our word cosmetics. Cosmetics make order out of chaos. The word world is used to describe this orderly system of values and goals and philosophies that mark a society that has abandoned God. It refers to the evil system that has usurped God's intended system for this earth. Now, we still use the word world in the sense of system today. We talk about the world of sports. We talk about the world of politics. We talk about the ancient world. We talk about the modern world. And when we say that, we're not referring to another planet. We're referring to an organized system made up of a set of ideas and activities and characteristics and purposes. And so when the Bible talks about world, the world is talking about the system that has turned its back on God. It's talking about the system that is built on a philosophy that's centered only in this life. It's a philosophy that is defined by the temporal. It's a philosophy that, that defines life as only happening from the cradle to the grave. It's a philosophy that says there's nothing better, there's nothing higher, there's nothing more precious than what this world can give you. It's a philosophy that says there's no higher praise than the praise of men. You see, that's the world. And John 12, 31 tells us that Satan is the ruler of this world. He runs it. He's pulling the strings. It's his system. And that is the world that John is talking about in our passage. That is the world, that system that we're not to love. Now, how do we keep from loving it? Do we have to go to the moon? Do we have to go and live in a monastery? No. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7, 31, that it's okay to use the world. We can drive its cars, we can live in its houses, we can work at its jobs, we can spend its money, as long as that doesn't translate into love. You say, well, when does it translate into love? Well, it translates to love when God expects you to be at worship on Sunday and instead you've got to shine your car. You see, at that point, you are not using your automobile, you are loving your automobile. You see, the test of who you love is in your choices. And then John helps us to understand that better by getting even more specific because he says in verse 15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. Now, what are the things in the world? What are worldly things? Now, Christians talk about this a lot. 
What are worldly things? Well, you know, some Christians would say worldly things are drugs and illicit sex and homosexuality and criminal activity. You see, we like to define worldly things as whatever I personally don't have a problem with. We prefer to define worldly things as things that are out there somewhere rather than in here. Other Christians would define worldliness by, by a very clear-cut list of do's and don'ts. You hear some Christians say, well, worldliness is going to the movies. Worldliness is rock music. Worldliness is having a glass of wine. Worldliness is becoming involved in politics. Or worldliness is not becoming involved in politics. Worldliness is sending your kids to public school. I like what Ray Steadman said. He said, this passage has been used to denounce everything from the waltz to the Watusi. Is that what John is talking about when he talks about worldliness? Well, if you think so, you're in for a big surprise. Because you're going to find that the emphasis of worldliness is not so much on actions as it is on our attitudes. And if you think you can reduce it to a legalistic list of do's and don'ts, Satan has you right where he wants you. I read recently about an incident that happened in World War II. After the Allied forces invaded North Africa, the next logical step was Sicily, the island right at the southern tip of Italy. And knowing that the Germans calculated this, the Allies decided to outfox them. And so one dark night, an Allied submarine came to the surface just off the coast of Spain. They put a rubber raft out to sea with an oar and the body of Major William Martin. William Martin was a British officer who had died of pneumonia before he ever got to the battlefront. In his pocket, they placed secret documents describing how the Allied forces planned to strike next in Greece to the east and Sardinia to the west. Major Martin's body washed ashore and Axis intelligence operatives soon found him thinking that he had died at sea. They passed the secret documents through Axis hands all the way to Hitler's headquarters. And the result was that while Allied forces moved towards Sicily, thousands and thousands of German troops moved toward Greece and Sardinia where the battle wasn't happening. Now I want to suggest to you this morning that that's the way Satan operates. He's much more cunning and he tries to get us to fight the battle where the battle is not really happening. You see, Satan would like you to believe otherwise, but the truth is the real battle isn't out there somewhere. The real battle is in here. And the real battle doesn't take place at the point of our actions. The battle takes place at the point of our attitudes. So some of us are drawing the battle lines 
where the battle isn't even being fought. Notice how John tells us that in verse 16. He says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Did you get that? All that is in the world is summed up in these three little phrases. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Now, where do you do battle with lust and pride? In here. You see, that's where the battle takes place. Now, let's dissect these three phrases. The first is the lust of the flesh. That word lust simply means desire. It's really a neutral term. It can be good desires or bad desires, but it means desires. But here he says it's the desire of the flesh, and that's our sinful nature. So the lust of the flesh is selfish desires, sinful desires, desires that center around me. So worldliness is when I make choices simply to satisfy my own selfish desires. Now, not all natural desires are sinful because God has built certain desires into us. We have certain drives. We have a hunger drive, which is good. It keeps us alive. But when we allow that drive to control us, it leads to the sin of gluttony. We have a natural sex drive. God has placed that into us so that, th that we have children and life continues. But when we allow that drive to control us, it leads to immorality. God has given us a drive for rest, for sleep. But when we let that become our focus, when we let that become the thing we live for, it leads to the sin of a sluggard. You know, in, in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, Paul lists there what he calls the deeds of the flesh. And they are these. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envies, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these. Now, those are not the lusts of the flesh. Those are the deeds of the flesh. You see, the lusts of the flesh say, what I really want is pleasure. What I really want is fulfillment. What I really want is satisfaction. The lust of the flesh drives me to do these things out of those goals. But the result is that I end up with the deeds of the flesh Immorality, envy, drunkenness, strife. You see, the things that the lust of the flesh desires, I never find fulfillment in, in the things of this world. Second phrase is the lust of the eyes. That's the desires that your eyes have. Did you know that your eyes have an appetite? Did you ever hear anybody say, feast your eyes on that? The lust of the eyes includes those things I tell myself I would never do, but I kind of enjoy watching on the soap operas or at the movies or in the magazines. 
It includes things I tell myself I don't really care about, but I sure like to look at, like fancy cars and clothes and houses and jewelry. See, that's the whole thing behind window shopping. They come on up and ask you, can I help you? And you say, no, I'm just looking. It'd be more accurate to say, no, thank you, I'm just lusting. See, it's in the lust of the eyes that sin really starts. Eve's sin began when she looked at the fruit and it says it was a delight to the eyes. Achan's sin began when he saw the spoils of Jericho. David's sin began when he saw Bathsheba, the lust of the eyes. And then thirdly is the pride of life. And that has to do with how we perceive ourselves in relation to others. It's wanting to outshine others. It's wanting to impress others. It's wanting to win the approval of others. And we often do that through possessions, don't we? It's that common phenomenon of keeping up with the Joneses. Someone has described it as the desire to have things we don't need bought with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like. It's living for the fame, the approval, the applause, the respect of men. And the fundamental issue there is that attitude of pride. Sometimes it's blatant pride. Muhammad Ali was perhaps the greatest boxer ever, and he knew it. And he would tell anybody who listened, I am the greatest. Humility was not his strong suit. One day back in his prime, he was on an airplane, and the airplane got into some turbulence, and the pilot told the passengers about the turbulence and suggested that everyone should buckle their seatbelts. Everyone complied except Ali. The flight attendant went over to him and said, Champ, the pilot has said we all ought to buckle our seatbelts. And Ali said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Without missing a beat, she replied, Yeah, but Superman don't need no airplane either. <laughs> now, you may not be as brazen in your pride as Muhammad Ali. But we all struggle with that temptation to inflate ourselves in our own eyes or in the eyes of others on the basis of our appearance, our accomplishments, our title, our education, our acquaintances. And you know, sometimes it's subtle. This is the attitude that causes our feelings to be hurt when someone forgets our birthday or when no one notices my new haircut or when I do an act of kindness and no one says thank you you see that's the pride of life so what are we not to love 
the world, the whole system of temporal values, and the things in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That's the attitude that says the world is here to satisfy me, and the whole world revolves around me. In Kyoto, Japan, there's a place of worship called the Temple of the Thousand Buddhas. And there are more than a thousand likenesses of Buddha, each one a little different, so that the worshiper can pick and choose the Buddha that he wants. Observers have often noted that a person tends to bow down to the Buddha that most resembles himself. You see, whenever we choose to create our own object of worship, we always make it in our own image. And that's the essence of worldliness. It's putting me at the center of the universe. Second question. Why are we not to love the world? And John gives us four reasons. Number one, it's incompatible with our domain. And we saw that last week in verses 12 to 14. There he told us that we are in the family of God. We are children who know the Father. We are young men who have overcome the evil one. We are fathers who have come to really know Jesus Christ through the experiences of life. And so we are no longer a part of this world system. And so loving the world is incompatible with our domain. Second reason, it's incompatible with our devotion. Notice verse 15 at the end. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Several years ago, there was a movie entitled Fatal Attraction in which a man thought that he could have a brief affair with another woman and it wouldn't affect his marriage. He was wrong. And so are we if we think that an affair with the world doesn't affect our relationship with Jesus Christ. Someone has said most Christians try to have just enough of God so that they're miserable in the world and just enough of the world so that they're miserable with God. Can we love the world and love God too? John says no. He says if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Love for the world and love for God is mutually exclusive. You can't love them both. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Now, he didn't say no one would serve two masters. He said no one could serve two masters. It's, it's not a question of choice. It's a question of possibility. James put it this way in James 4, 4. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So you can't have it both ways. 
Perhaps the saddest commentary on this is in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, where Paul says, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. So loving the world is incompatible with our devotion. Third, it's incompatible with our desire. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. These desires, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, they don't come from the Father. They come from the world. Now, what comes from the Father? Well, he tells us in the next verse, verse 17, that is the will of God. You see, there's the desire for the things of this world, and there is the desire to fulfill the will of God. As a Christian, I have been given salvation. I have been given spiritual eyes. At the point I was saved, God changed the price tags on things so that the things that I used to think were valuable are now worthless. And God has given me a new desire and a new capacity to fulfill His will. And so the question is, why would I be living to please the ruler of this world when I have been called to please the King of Kings? You see, loving the world is incompatible with our desire. And then fourthly, it's incompatible with our destiny. Verse 17, And the world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. The world is temporal. It's passing away. It's kind of like the deck of the Titanic right after it hit the iceberg. It still looked pretty attractive, but it was going down. And that's the way it is with this world. It still looks pretty attractive, but it's going down. It's passing away. And in contrast to that, he says, we will abide forever. You see, we have opposite destinies. And so it's totally inconsistent for me, who is going to live forever, to spend my life going after things that are not going to last. Martin Luther said, I have held many things in my hands, and I have lost them all. But the things I have placed in God's hands, I still possess. You see, that's the eternal priority. Loving this world is incompatible with our destiny. So John says, do not love the world. Why not? It's incompatible with our domain. We are in the family of God. It's incompatible with our devotion. Our love is for the Father. It's incompatible with our desire. Our desire is to please Him by doing His will. And it's incompatible with our destiny. We're going to live forever. You see, John is telling us that the best way to deal with the world is not merely to denounce it, but to realize who I am, who I love, who I serve, and where I'm going. And when I understand that, 
then the world loses its glitter. You see, I don't have to go through life telling myself over and over again, don't love that woman, don't love that woman, don't love that woman. All I have to do is one positive thing. I just have to love my wife. And when I love my wife with all my heart, other women fade out of view. And that's what John is telling us here, I think. He's saying our focus, the question doesn't have to be, do I love the world? See, the question should be, do I love the Lord? And if I love the Lord with all my heart, I'm not going to have a problem with this exhortation.